Thanks for clicking play on PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In this episode, Soela Langeni of Book Circle Capital is in conversation with Leslie Mofukeng, author of The Man Who Shook Mountains. In this book, Mofukeng investigates the life of his remarkable grandfather, Mongangane Wilfred Mofukeng a prominent Dutch Reformed Church evangelist who built a thriving community out of the dust of the far northwest. In this process, Morfaking proudly claims his heritage and also uncovers a long-lost chapter of South African history and the Church of the Apartheid Regime. Enjoy the episode. And welcome to the PageCast podcast. My name is Sawela Langeni from Book Circle Capital, an independent bookshop that focuses on African literature. It is my honor to have a conversation about a new book, The Man Who Shook Mountains in the Footsteps of My Ancestors, with the author, Leslie Mufukeng. Leslie is a spokesperson for the South African uh, Music Awards, journalist, author, writer, and commentator. Welcome, Leslie. How are you? I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Samela. Awesome. Thanks for making the time. This book is a tribute to your grandfather, Ndate Mungangani Mufukeng, who was a minister in the Enkriyekerk. Give us a brief history about how this book came about. Well, this book came out of the narrative journalism class or literary journalism class at Vets University, where I went in 2019 to complete my master's degree that I had left a few years earlier. Mm. So I walked in and my kind of um, area was research that I needed to do. Mm. And I was asked to find a topic that was close to my heart. So for the longest time, I knew that there was something special about my grandfather. I just did not know what it was exactly. I knew that apparently he built a church or schools or hospitals. And I thought there was something really special about him. And my memories of him was always of people, you know, paying respects to him. Just mm. He was just a respectable man that was loved by the community. And I told myself that one day, someday when I'm retired, I'll revisit the story of my grandfather and write something about it. I just don't know what. So there I was at Vets sitting in the master's class, and uh, my supervisor, Kevin Davey, said, what are you going to do? And the class said, you must do something that's personal. And I said, okay, maybe I should suggest my grandfather's story. And there was a warm reception from the get-go. People were like, that's fascinating. That's interesting. Why would you go to the Enchiekerk? It's the church that justified apartheid. Why would he do it? That's such an interesting story. And immediately I got the confidence to say, oh, perhaps maybe there is something there. And that's how I got to this story. So I started work on it in 2019. Uh, with a proposal yeah. that got accepted and then uh, started the actual work just before COVID. So when COVID level five hit in March 2020, mm. there I was in my grandfather's house in Mafiking working on this research paper that would eventually become a book. So in a nutshell, that's it. It started off as, as, as my master's dissertation adverts and here we are. Wonderful. And in fact, you mentioned in the book that your grandfather wanted you to study at first. And here we are today. Yes, yes. That's, that's a very emotional point for me. When I was at probably primary school, maybe, before even high school, he used to tell me about vets. 
And I didn't understand the concept of university back then. Yeah. It was later when I grew older, I realized that he meant VETS University because he used to say, you must go study at VETS. You must go study at VETS. And I didn't understand that. Yeah. So I finally finished my schooling and there was no money to take me to VETS. Yeah. I ended up at the Northwest University in Mafikeng. So it overwhelms me that the same university that my grandfather wanted me to go and study, mm -hmm. I actually ended up going to that university and I used his story, his yes. life story, so to acquire a master's degree from Vets University. And what's worse, I am now a lecturer at Vets University. Wow. I'm an associate Wonderful. lecturer in the journalism department. So all of these things really point to something bigger than me. Mm. And I can imagine my grandfather as a young man coming to Johannesburg and seeing this university, which was still probably 10, 20 years old, and had all of these big names studying there. He couldn't go there. He only had yes. standard six. Um, and he was a laborer. laborer and yeah. I can imagine him one day imagining that one day my children or their children's children will come and study at this university. Because it's a job ever. It's a fulfillment. It's, 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 it gets emotional when what I talk powerful, about it. What a powerful legacy yeah. that is. What a, what eh? a legacy. Thank you. So you are, of course, a writer and you've written two other books uh, on behalf of two well-known uh, personalities in South Africa, Kanyimbao, Somizi. How was it writing this book? How was the experience since it's such a personal story? Yeah. Yes, I did write those biographies. I also wrote other biographies of lesser-known people. Yeah. And a cookbook. Wow. Uh, not my own. Uh, chef Nti wrote me in to do the text for wow. uh, a chef. I know chef <laughs> yes, yes. I, I worked with Chef Nti on that book. Um, and I edited a lot of other books, fiction and non-fiction. So I've done a lot of work in the in the book space. Yeah. Um, but this one, I consider it my first book. Yeah. And the reason is because it's my story, it's my yes. research, it's my own inspiration, it's my work. Um, and I had full editorial control over it. I was so happy and so lucky and blessed to work with uh, Jonathan Ball, yeah. who enabled me to do a lot of things, including traveling and setting the tone and really just writing from my heart. Um, and that's really, I think that's what's, what makes this book so special for me. It's a personal story of a man I, know, I knew for 32 years. My grandfather passed on when I was 32. Mm. And it's someone that I had known all my life. All I knew was my grandfather and his strength and mm. his presence and, and all of that. So to pay tribute, I don't take this lightly, that there are so many families with stories, yeah. but they never get to document them. They never yeah. get that opportunity yeah. to, to, uh, you know, to, to, to put it in a capsule of sorts yeah. and say for generations to come, this is the story of our ancestor, our patriarch, our matriarch, but at the Mufuken family, we are so happy that the story of our grandfather gets to be told and hopefully travel the world and inspire and touch people because we do believe that it's a universal story. Yeah. It's a personal story. It's a um, set in a remote area in the Northwest. But when you read through it, you find that it resonates with a whole lot of people, yeah. not only black, not only white, not only Christian, not only unchristian or whatever. You may and not only South it, African. And not only South African. Yeah. Really. I think it's an African story. It's, an, it's a story of a society that has experienced um, missionary work, 
um, even colonialism, colonialism yes. yeah, all over the world. There are all of these themes. So it's a very special book to me. I consider it my first book. That's okay. why sometimes I get nervous when I have to talk about it as if I've never written a book before. Yeah, I think we need to we need to increase that biography because clearly there's so much that's missing from it. Um, in the third chapter of the book, you write about uh, life for black migrant workers back then in uh, uh, Marabi Makogogum. Why was it important for you to paint this picture? Well, my grandfather came from the Free State with a standard six, being like one of the most educated people mm. in in his family. In fact, he was he was he was the first literate in yes. the family, the first one to go to school and get that far. And his father, uh, his name is Takato. Yes. Takato, my uncle, and Takato, my great grandfather. Yes. So my great grandfather said, "You Mungangani will not." work for the white men in the farms of yes. the free state. I want you to be educated and took him to Tabanchu, yeah. where he studied up to study six. And then with all of this education, what would he do? I mean, so he packed his bags and said, I'm going to go to Joburg and meet up with my cousin brother and see what I can do. And the situation really was really dire at the time. We're talking about late 1920s South Africa. For a young black man, it was quite a challenging space to find yourself in, getting off at Jamestown train station yes. and finding this place called Magogogo, which <laughs> means a place of Magogogo or shanties, shanties. or that or kind cans. of thing, or cans, yeah. Magogogo. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, having to settle there and find a new life and really chart a new way for a people chart a new way for a family that for generations that for generations that will reverberate through generations i'm sitting here as a consequence of my grandfather's actions back in 1920 1930 when he said i'm not going to work in the farms i mean nobody can say where i would be personally had my grandfather decided to stay in the free state and work on the farms could be a farm laborer myself i Mm. could be something else but he chose a different path and that um, set the tone for the rest of the family and generations to come. So it was important for me to revisit that part and tell that story of the movement and the settling in this foreign city for him mm. and having to find, you know, a place for himself. Mm. Um, he eventually moves to, to Soweto as one of the first like, residents yeah. of Orlando. Yeah and eventually goes now for the missionary and, and become uh, uh, an evangelist of the Dutch Reformed Church. But um, it all started with this big move to the big city. Yeah, and that, that is instrumental in all the research you'll even read about migrant labor, that arrival in yeah. that big city, the trains, which you yes. paint a beautiful picture about it, that hustle and bustle, yeah. but also belonging and not really belonging. Yeah. You know, you, you paint that Absolutely. beautiful picture of that. That the Mufukeng was instrumental in changing uh, his lineage, like you've said, mm-hmm. by being uh, the only child from 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 the grand from your grandfather's side who who obtained uh, an education, changed things for his children. Uh, your father Moses, uh, your uh, your your uncle Professor Takato Mufukeng, it changed things for you, as you said. So, which which highlights the power of education. So elaborate just a bit on this. Yes, absolutely. There's a chapter that, in the chapter, I talked to my uncle, Professor Takato Mufukin. Yeah. And he talks about how in the Mufukin family, we realized 
soon enough that education was really the only catalyst. catalyst. Yeah. We didn't have money, we're not, we don't have generational wealth. All we had was education. Mm. And we saw that with our grandfather, thanks to our great-grandfather. Yes. And then came him and then our generation, yeah. which, by the way, I think we are such underachievers <laughs> because we do not have a PhD in my generation. Yeah, yeah. It is so embarrassing Maybe for me to admit. Maybe you will still do it. You will still do it. I hope so. Yeah. It's significant to notice or to note this, that my grandfather was the first one to be illiterate in the family in the 1930s. Mm. A generation later, Professor Takatsumofukeng became the first one in the family to get a PhD mm. from Notre Dame mm. in, in, in the Netherlands. But before that, he actually went to Princeton. For yes, his I saw that. He's an Ivy League wow. graduate in one generation, yeah, yeah. all thanks to education. Yes. That is why till today we still push for education is the quickest yeah. simplest way yeah. to better your life yeah. and especially on this legacy. continent especially on yes this, in on other this places where yeah. tech is advanced where yes. the economy is thriving people can yeah. advance through entrepreneurship but for yes. us it's still education it's still education um there might be challenges today yeah. with unemployment people are educated yeah. and they still can't find employment yeah. but it's better to be educated and yeah. stand that chance when the opportunity comes knocking Absolutely. than to not have anything um, to stand on when, when opportunity comes. So education is central, and that's another message that I hope people will get from this book, yeah. to see that really the shortest shortcut, the quickest way to turn your fortunes around is in education. Yeah. yeah. After undergoing theological training at Stoffberg, and that day Mfukeng was called to Halekspan, a, a name I enjoyed calling Halekspan, <laughs> in 1952, where he made a great impact. Talk to us through some of the things he did there that till today the community will, will refer to. Yes, it's 70 years um, since my grandfather began his missionary work, and I think it's up that to celebrate yeah. this milestone. This book is out to tell his story. Wonderful. He comes to this cattle post with nothing. Um, they had sold stuff that they acquired or accumulated at Stoffberg yeah. uh, at the seminary. And then what do they do? They get there, they find this O-haze mm -hmm. built out of stones. They live in this O-haze. And later, obviously, things develop and, and as, you know, as progress happens. Yeah. And, and the cattle post becomes this transit sort of point, taking people to Mafikeng, to Lachtenberg, to Madiboho and Atamelang, all of mm. these places in that times, the Joanna land, if yeah. you like. But my grandfather was there to spread the word, to spread the gospel and be a minister. But there's something to be said about his uh, tenacity and ingenuity in that he believed in the creation of a community. I don't yeah. know if believe is the word, but he invested. Let me say he invested himself. He was really dedicated to yeah. his work as an evangelist. In the end, we stand now, 70 years later, and thankful that the hospital that he built, called Halexpan Hospital, still stands. Yeah. Um, that the church that he built in 1956 still stands. Wow. The schools that he built, some of them have actually uh, fallen down yeah. with the passage of time. They have not survived time, but some of them are still there. But the biggest story is that his name and his deeds are written in the hearts of those people in yeah. the Halak span. Yeah. That is that really was so essential for me 
to go and speak to the old people, the old men and women who saw my grandfather's work and who understood the significance of his work and captured them before they departed. Because yeah. some of them have already gone on, um, <clears throat> you know, they've passed on, and thankfully I've managed to secure that. Because we rely on oral culture as Absolutely. Africans. And as they say, when an old person dies, it's like an old a, a whole library yeah. up in flames. The whole archive, is the whole gone. archive is gone. In fact, you you talk about that archiving. I mean, uh, the current uh, minister that's there now has no records because the, the the pastor that was there after your grandfather was quite careless with that record. So so yes. that oral culture was quite key. It was quite key. That's all I had to work to work with because church records were banned. Yeah, is the answer I was told. Like. There was some sort of a commotion yeah. um, after my grandfather left the, the the present or the minister at the time. I don't know governance and whatever. I don't know the details. All yeah. I know is that they had nothing in the end to show except what people knew about my grandfather. Um, and someone, when I started my research, adverts recommended the records of the Enchia Kyarik. Yeah. They are there. They date back to the 1700s, yeah. but they don't include the black record. There's no black archive. There are marriages, births, and deaths recorded that you can get um, for, from the Western Cape. I think they called it the Cape at that time, just the Cape. Mm. The records are there, but they did not bother to record black deaths, black lives. Black yeah. lives. They didn't matter back then. So it's, it's, a, it's a clarion call to our people to say, we need to write things down. Yeah. We need to archive them in a certain way that they will survive the passage of time. Yeah. Because relying on oral traditions has proven to let us down, Absolutely. frankly speaking. Yeah. You know, the people may be there, but maybe you're not ready to do to undertake the work. Like as a new, you've always known the story yeah. was in your head. Yeah. But until the, the masters, you had not done it. Yeah. So and, and in the meantime, people are busy going. People are yes. busy dying. So, yes. so but I must also say, Swella, that mm. thanks to my work as a journalist at the Sunday Times, I managed to record some snippets here and there of my oh, grandfather. There was a project yes. called Going Home. I think it was 2002, 2003. Sunday Times sent us all back to where we come from. Wow. Um, in inverted commas. Yes. And I chose <laughs> to go to my grandfather's uh, house because that's where I grew up. My grandparents brought me up. Yeah. Um, if there's one thing you need to remember about me is that I was brought up by my grandparents. Yeah. So I see them as my parents. Their house is my house, is my home. Yeah. And I went there and I recorded the story of my grandfather at home and also in this Khalaqspan uh, complex. Yeah. So there were snippets here and there that I kept saving for myself because I knew there was something. So bigger. something bigger. And yeah. now we are at the something bigger. There is actually a book that tells this whole story crystallizes everything and you know encapsulates it and and puts it somewhere there as as an enduring archive for years to come but i had i had always had this burning sensation to tell my grandfather's story powerful um reading about your grandmother kukuma hadi was so beautiful uh, it reminded me of my mother you know that thing you said about how the story is universal my my mother-in-law it reminded me of my grandmother you know you write this about her which is so 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 powerful and i just had to just to there's a whole chapter about her so it's the wind 
the, is it the wind beneath, beneath your his wings. yeah beneath, the wind his beneath wind, his wings. your grand grandfather's wings so as you conclude that chapter you say she was irrepressible indomitable sophisticated and classy it was on her back that the family of mufugeng was raised and rested why the need to have this section yeah. on her Yes, when I started talking about chapters for the book, yeah. I realized that I'm telling my grandfather's story well and good, mm. but my grandfather was not alone. My grandfather stood, um, you know, had a family and had a wife, my grandmother, who was... I don't, I don't think the chapter does justice to her story. I yeah. really attempted. But um, there's also a part of our history, family history and church history and whatever, that we never talk about, about how our grandmothers and even our mothers ran the homes. Yeah. Ran homes, like created this space, this safe space mm. where we were loved, where we felt warm, where we felt cared for, where there was just love. Yes. And that's all they did. So my grandmother did other things. Yes, she might have been an ancillary nurse of sorts yeah. at, the, at, the, at, the, at the home for the uh, children living with disabilities. She did all of these other things, but mainly her main thing was to run this run household, yeah. run this, this home and contribute to it financially. Yeah. She was not just sitting there and, ho and waiting for my grandfather to bring back, you know, home, the bacon, the salary. Yeah. The salary. Yeah. She actually was active in making money making a living and contributing that's why i, I say she was not a bystander yeah. she actually went out and created stuff i i wish people read this chapter it's one of my favorite chapters initially i called it a love letter to my grandmother and then yeah. i changed it to something else but i wrote it from the heart i really yeah. sat down with tears i kid you not streaming wow. down my face as i remembered the significance of my grandmother in the story, in the greater story of my grandfather, but also in my own personal life, the values that I hold dear, the my approach and perspective to life greatly influenced by my grandmother. Yeah. So I hope the chapter sheds some light. She deserves a book yeah. of her own. Um, as much as I call her a feminist, a, 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 a homemaker and all of that, she was actually also a determined feminist. Yeah. My grandmother believed in the power of women and believed that women could achieve more. As much as she operated in that patriarchal society yeah. and as much as she was running this home, she, whenever she get a chance, she made it clear that women were equals to men. Yeah. I can imagine that if my grandfather were to pass on earlier in her life, she would have been able to carry Get this on. family. Yeah. She would have been able to to run the family. Um, so yeah, I do get emotional yeah. when I talk about my grandmother. But thank you for pointing out to that chapter. It really is one of my favorite chapters in this book. No, I mean reading it, I, I saw lots of mothers. Yes, uh, you know because especially in, in in black communities, they've got that job, but there's also the, the, the they're selling something on the side or they're making something on the side. Then they're still running the home. Yes. I mean, historically, that most husbands were migrant workers. They'd come back at the end of each month. Sometimes they wouldn't send money. Who's mm -hmm. running the show? So I, I definitely, definitely resonated. Thank you so much. So halfway through the book, you take a historical turn, you know, and, and educate us, the readers, uh, on the history of the church, 
some of the atrocities that were done uh, to black Christians in the name of God. I refer to page 129, you know, that, that, that chapter about the Rolands of Beersheba. And you say there's a page missing in the chapters of South African history, a part overlooked, forgotten, and not spoken about as often as it should be. Somehow, when the great bloody episodes of South African wars are remembered, no mention is made of the Beersheba massacre of black Christians. Mm. Why did you have to highlight this? <clears throat> so, so well, when I, after I wrote my grandfather's story, and I obviously it's tied completely to the church. It's a church story. Yeah. It's not this book is not a Christian book. It's yes. a search for identity. I get you. Absolutely. So I said to myself, I am a practicing Christian. I go to this church that has changed its name now to the Uniting Reformed Church, but it is the Enrique Kerk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I identify as Christian, and I still carry on the teachings of my grandfather. I needed to locate myself and understand how I got here. Mm-hmm. So I said, let me take this story a, a step further and investigate this church and also try to answer the question, why did you, as my grandparents, carried on working for the Enchiekerk that justified apartheid. Were you not on the wrong side of history? Those are some of the questions that I was battling with. So I ended up saying, let me go and investigate this church. The chapter that you're quoting right now about the Rolands of Beersheba starts the story of what became known as the Beersheba massacre of black Christian. That is not spoken about. 2,000 Christians were murdered brutally by marauding uh, four trackers as as they were moving from the Cape inwards, and they found this sprawling, really vibrant uh, settlement of black Christians of known as Beersheba mm. that was run by the missionary Samuel Roland and his wife Elizabeth. Elizabeth, yeah. And they were literate. They published books. They printed the Bible. They translated the they Bible. They had a newspaper. They had a newspaper. Yeah. Um, we're talking about 1840s, 1850s. That's ancient history. Yeah. Our ancestors were great people, guys. Mm. I wish black people who read this, Africans, understand how far back we go with what we call civilization today in inverted commas. Yeah. We have always been able to read and write. Yeah. The missionaries did all of this work. Yeah. But whether it's jealousy, whether it's... I don't know, inferiority greed. complex. Oh. of And also greed. There's yeah. also definitely greed there to speak of. We are here, we are where we are right now. Mm. Beersheba massacre was a turning point in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church, but also in the history of religion and Christianity in South Africa. Um, I mean, I don't want to give away the yeah, entire thing, but I want, <laughs> I wish for readers to go through that chapter and I hope they'll make the connections that I make between the Beersheba massacre and the Enchiekerk and how this church is known also as the French church, Kerek Yafura. Because there is a direct link there. And if, I mean, just go through the pages and see for yourself. But it's important for Christians to pause. Today, we identify as Christians. We want to connect with our African roots and rediscover who we are as Africans. So this or these chapters from from the Rolands of Beersheba all the way to the end is an African trying to find his place in this religious context, in this Christian um, dogma, if you like, Mm. 
and also trying to say, but I'm still an African. I still want to celebrate what makes me uniquely African. Mm. And I want to acknowledge that religion and Christianity came from Europe. Mm. And where is my place? Mm. Um, I don't have all the answers. I don't think I even give answers in the book. No, you don't. But I, I want to provoke. It's a provocation. Okay. I am poking at you as Africans and saying, are you aware of all of these things? The hymns that we sing, are you aware of this religion? The concept of church, how did you end up here? So I, it's, it's a thought provoker, if you like. And yet with all of that, you still profess you know, your faith in God. How has this then impacted your faith? I was hoping you won't ask me that question, Suela. Ah. I told you, I'm also from the Enkhya Gap, yes. and it's something that I grapple with. So yeah. when you go and put a book on it, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> Thank you, Suela. Because I, I, I imagine someone asking me, are you going to leave the church now? Yeah. After all of these reflections and seeing, I mean, there's a chapter there from my uncle in the Free State who talks about the decisions my grandfather made yeah. and how he sort of robbed us in inverted commas of our Africanness and yes. our Busoto, how we essentially became white or westernized. Yeah. Yes. Stopped all so the traditional traditions, tradi which and, many families yeah. have, have, have done. We are, we are battling with that as Africans. Yeah. People, we find that we grow up Christian, we grew up Christian and all you know is church and, 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 and Christianity. And then suddenly you've got a cousin of yours who needs to go and twasa and become a traditional healer. Mm. I have those examples in my family mm. where we find that all we know was church. Our grandfather taught us about this. Our fathers were elders and ministers and evangelists of the Dutch Reformed Church. All we know is church. And suddenly there is this need to reconnect with our past, with African traditions we know nothing of and about. And we very unsure how to act and and i guess this is what this book is all about this tension that we're going through and as i say i don't have the answers yeah you're right to say that i still profess my religion the fact that i'm christian you i still believe do beliefs. my beliefs yeah. i am still christian i don't plan on walking away or out of the uh, dutch reformed church or the uniting reformed church you know my reasoning could be it's all i know I could say that it's all I know. I'm 46 years old. Mm -hmm. I think it would be too much of an adjustment for me to go <laughs> find another spiritual home. Yeah. But I am battling with those questions. I am asking myself and asking other Africans to question themselves, yeah. to pause for a moment and think about how religion and Christianity came into our existence and into our families. For me, it was my great-grandfather probably in, let's say, 1900, mm. when he joined the AME church. My grandfather in the 1940s. So you can see it's really recent. If you yeah. think about it, it's really recent. If our ancestors have been here for thousands of years, and we've only had uh, Christianity and religion for about 100 years, it's a new thing. And... Yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah, I get you. It's hectic. I get you, it but get I, I love that even others have written about the, the need to keep the separation, religion, uh, denomination to God. You know, Velimak, yes. that people yes. would call that name before even the missionaries arrived. You know, so... so. But it's a debate that will continue. Yeah. No, it's a debate. I mean, what I'm reading right now, so well, I know we're running out of time, but yeah. quickly I wanted to say what I'm reading right now I'm reading newspapers from 
1901 to 1915. It's yeah. my next project. And what I find there, a lot of articles that I find are on the minutes of the Wesleyan Church, the yeah. Methodist Church, Methodist, and yeah. the decisions that were made at the Synod. There's a, an article about a, a Synod from 1888, which said that Africans must stop paying Lobola. Yeah. No more Buhadi. Yeah. Uh, no more uh, going to the mountain yeah. initiation and stay away from polygamy, polygamy yeah. and all of these things. So there was a deliberate, it's a conversion. Yes, mm. it is. They came here to convert Africans mm. uh, to this religion, uh, Christianity. My only regret is that I wish that, that they had integrated yes. African traditions and make it all work together. But that was not their mission. Their mission was to say, Complete you are a heathen. Yeah. Exactly. Annihilation of de denounce this Africanness, forget about all of this, aspire yeah. to be Western. And we're still battling with that now. Till today. <laughs> Till today. Till today. So the book is called The Men Who Shoot the Mountains. Yes. And before reading the book, it's clear that this man you're talking about is your grandfather. Yeah. But reading the book, I could not help but also wonder that is that man also you? <laughs> you know, you shook the mountains with your questions. Well, I hope the book shakes mountains. Yeah. The book shakes you from your slumber, gets yeah. you thinking about your place, your position, the hymns that you sing, the hymns that... You know, some of the hymns talk about Africa as the land of blood. Darkness. The land of darkness. Yeah. And they were written by white French men mm. who came straight from Paris to here mm. and they observed the, the world around them and still sing them um, in church, outside of church. Um, shake... Uh, yeah, I hope the book shakes mountains. I still have a long way to go. Speaking for myself, I still have a long way to go mm. to sit and say I have shaken mountains. Yeah. I would love to shake mountains. I hope that um, God grants me a long life to still do more and write more books and, and, and provoke Africans to wake up from their slumber. I really, I really do wish that Africans, especially black Africans, yeah. Um, could wake up to their greatness and realize that their ancestors were great people who did amazing things. Yeah, let me leave it there. Wow, <laughs> that, that is so good. We can't conclude this interview without talking about hymns. You, you go into great lengths about hymns, you know, your favorite ones, your grandmother's favorite ones. I was then curious to say, what is your favorite hymn in the Hosanna, which is the hymn book that the Mkherkerk now Uksa sings from? Yes. Um, ooh, so that's another question I don't like because I like so many hymns. They'll tell you I go to the URCSA church in Alexandra. Yeah. Um, I'm the member of the CMM, the Christian Men's Ministry. There. Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite things is to start hymns. Yeah. And they always tend to me to start hymns. Wow. I like Bokang Um, I like it because it really is about glorification of God yeah. and the sacrifices and the grace that God has visited upon us. Um, and I like that it's not too political. Yes. Because when you listen to some of the songs, they'll talk about uh, black heathens yeah. who, who who get washed in whiteness and all of those. Yeah. So those, I kind of stay away from them. I do sing them. I do sing them with guilt, I yes. must say. After I wrote this book, whenever I hear a hymn that talks or that, that denigrates Africanness or that condemns anything that's African, I 
do still sing you with are guilt. ruined now I am ruined. of the information <laughs> i am ruined but i'm glad that it's for a greater cause yeah. for africans to assert themselves and to realize that they are much greater than what they've made they've been made out to be so my favorite hymn my answer to his boka mudimo wa khanya mudimo wa rentseng it's about god's deeds and i think for example for the men who shook mountains to be here yeah. it's by the grace of god yeah. and it's by the presence of mind that i suppose God invested in me to to go and tell the story. Powerful. On that note, thank you so much. I thank you for for this interview for this book, Body of Work which would hopefully help. I mean, I thought of students in theology referring to this work. I thought of people who are wondering about identities referring yes. to this work. So well done. Oh, May you do you. more. So this book is distributed and published by Jonathan Ball and it's available at all good bookstores nationwide. Absolutely. So well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you and I hope this book travels. I hope the story travels and inspires people not only to read the story but to also rediscover their own stories and make an attempt to archive those stories. Let's write more books like this and get people talking and shaking mountains. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pagecast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast@gmail.com. At Until next time, keep reading and listening. <laughs>